Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. It requires courts to consider an accused person's history of convictions for violence, as well as community safety and security concerns when making a bail decision. Crucially, these proposed reforms signal that repeat violent offenders who pose a risk to community safety should not be released while awaiting trial. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and that was the voice of the Federal Justice Minister, David Lametti, as he unveiled long-awaited changes to Canada's bail system. Will this work? This has been demanded by mayors, premiers, opposition politicians after we've seen a surge of violent crimes being committed by violent repeat offenders. Will this change to the bail system stop that carnage? Let's discuss it now with the leader of the opposition, Pierre Polyev, leader of the Federal Conservative Party. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to this show. Pierre Polyev, thank you for coming on this morning. Thank you for having me. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. Uh, let's talk about the bill that was uh, unveiled by the government yesterday to toughen bail restrictions. Will this work? It will not undo the damage Trudeau did when he brought in catch and release. Remember, it was Justin Trudeau that gave us the catch and release system where he allows repeat violent offenders to be released the same day they are arrested, uh, even when they're charged with very serious violent offenses. We were asking for Trudeau to reverse his own catch and release policy that has unleashed the crime chaos drugs and disorder that has taken over our streets. They have not fully reversed Trudeau's catch and release. They go a small step back uh, towards the previous uh, common sense system, but not all the way. We want to fully repeal catch and release. And my common sense plan is to bring jail, not bail, jail, not bail for repeat violent offenders. It should be automatic and universal. If someone is a repeat violent offender, they should be required to do their entire period up to the trial behind bars, not released in the community. This bill does not do that. It creates a reverse onus that allows uh, the, the offender to prove that they should be released. In other words, there's no guarantee that a repeat violent offender would stay behind bars. They could make the argument, as the killer of Constable Greg Purcella did, that wow. They should be released. Uh, that is the, the situation that Justin Trudeau is keeping in place. So while he's taken a, a small step to reverse the damage he's caused, we want him to go all the way. Under the system that we have now in Canada, you are innocent until proven guilty. So we're talking about people who are charged with the crime. This is something that David Lametti continually stressed yesterday that we have a charter of rights and freedoms in our country. You are innocent until proven guilty. So how can you keep people locked up in jail if they're just accused of a crime? How does that square with our charter? I only think that it should happen when we're dealing with repeat violent offenders. So the problem is under Justin Trudeau's catch and release system, which he brought into place in Bill C-75, a person can have 60 or 70 prior convictions for a violent offense, get newly arrested, and then be released the same day. 
That's why in Vancouver, the same 40 people had to be arrested 6,000 times. Yeah. 6,000 arrests for 40 offenders. That's 150 arrests per offender per year under Justin Trudeau's catch and release policy. What we're proposing is that if someone has a long track record of violent convictions and they're newly arrested, uh, they should uh, they should stay in jail until their trial is done and if convicted, until their sentence is complete. That's my common sense plan. You mentioned police officer Greg Pierce who was killed in December, and the man who was charged in that particular case, as you said, was out on bail. He's got a, a long, violent criminal record. Are, are you saying that with these reforms that were introduced by the government yesterday, that guy, Randall McKenzie, he still would be released? Yes. He was released under Justin Trudeau's catch and release system, and he yeah. would re- be released under the proposed legislation that Justin Trudeau's government put forward yesterday. I'll tell you why. What Trudeau's proposing is that there be a reverse onus on the criminal to prove that they are the accused to be to prove that they're not a danger and should be released. Well, the uh, Mr. McKenzie, because of his prior convictions, already faced a reverse onus. So this new change would not have given it required he uh, cross an, uh, any higher bar and it would not guarantee that he stayed behind bars. He would have the same test before a judge to get released under Trudeau's new proposal as he had under the previous uh, Trudeau catch and release system. In other words, he would be released and would have been able to kill uh, Constable Purcella even under the changes that the Trudeau government is now accepting. In that particular case, this man, despite his long record of violent crime, was still released by a judge who said that the judge said he was obligated to give consideration to his indigenous background and this is something that the justice minister stressed yesterday that this is still a concern for indigenous people black people who are overrepresented in the jails so let me play a a very short clip here for you from the justice system from the justice minister on this point and then get your thoughts so this is justice minister david lametti at the same time we want to make sure that these law reforms do not make things worse for indigenous people black people and other vulnerable groups who we know are overrepresented in the criminal justice system. What about, Mr. Polyev, what is your position on that point for people who are receiving consideration for their Indigenous background, if they're Black Indigenous, and they're getting considerations from the judge? Should that continue? Well, what should continue is some consideration for the victims. The Trudeau's justice minister says he doesn't want to make things worse for Black and Indigenous people. He has made it worse for black and indigenous people by subjecting them to more violent crime. I'll give you an example. Sanderson, the killer uh, who went on a stabbing spree in Saskatchewan. I think he killed 11 First Nations people. He was out on parole. The guy has something like 60 prior convictions for violent offenses. So when Trudeau says catch and release helps indigenous and black people he's frankly it's a racist comment on his part what he should be doing what we all should do is common sense that is to say protect the victims of crime including black and indigenous victims who suffer the most when violent repeat offenders are released early into the communities to reoffend and terrorize their neighbors so i will bring in a common sense plan that requires repeat violent offenders stay in prison till their trial and their sentences are complete
Speaking to federal conservative leader Pierre Polyev, let me ask you about another big story this week that is of keen interest to our listeners here, and that is the issue around safe supply of drugs. We've got record numbers of overdose deaths here in British Columbia. People are dying from fentanyl and other dangerous street drugs. The idea of a safe supply, so you give them a lab-tested dose of an alternative drug so they don't die from these toxic street drugs. I know you've got a strongly held opinion on this. I want to play a short clip here for the listeners of an exchange in the House of Commons uh, between yourself and the federal mental health and addictions minister, Carolyn Bennett. Let's listen to this and then I'll get your thoughts. People are dying because the policies of this prime minister are killing them. He is, his policies are flooding the streets with drugs that now go for a dollar a hit. We are pretty fed up with this fight against evidence-based programs that actually are saving lives. We cannot allow the Conservatives to take us back to the failed ideology of the past. Okay, so you heard the the government uh, backbenchers and cabinet ministers are plotting here applauding her there, Mr. Polyev, as she accused you of having an ideology of the past. Your thoughts? My uh, approach is common sense. Uh, When the Conservatives were in office, drug overdose deaths in British Columbia were 75% lower than they are now. They have quadrupled under Justin Trudeau and the NDP. And the, the, the more drugs that Trudeau funds to spread in the communities, the more overdoses rise. The more he legalizes crack, heroin, cocaine, and other hard drugs, the more overdoses and crime rise. The data is clear now. Overdoses are up 300% in BC since the so-called safe supply or the free drugs for addicts policy came into place. And what what is actually, the theory is that they're going to give out these drugs that are free of contaminants and controlled in dose, and therefore addicts will be safe. Well, the reason why it hasn't worked in reality is because what happens is people get bored of the drugs and they want something stronger. The hydromorphine, while it's strong enough to be like heroin is not strong enough to keep people high. So what they do is they sell it to kids and then they use the profits to buy illicit fentanyl, which causes their overdose death. Now those kids then use the hydromorphine for seven or eight weeks until it's not strong enough for them. And then they start selling it in order to buy fentanyl themselves and they die as well. And this cycle goes on and on and on. I will cancel taxpayer funded, free hard drugs for addicts and put all of the money into recovery and treatment to bring home our loved ones drug free. Okay. So are you therefore saying that on safe supply, you would completely shut down these programs or could it, what is it possible to reform them and bring in stricter controls? There are some people who say there should be on-site consumption, allow people to have these safe, these so-called safe supply drugs, but they'd be required to use them at a supervised consumption site. You would not bring in, you would not consider that you'd shut it all down. I'd stop taxpayer funded drugs for addicts and put all of the money into recovery and treatment, recovery and treatment works. And we have, Two laboratories, Alberta and British Columbia. In B.C., they've, with the help of Justin Trudeau, they've decriminalized crack, heroin, cocaine. What does it cause? Massive overdoses, drugs, disorder, crime, and chaos. The evidence in, is in it's failed. In Alberta, they're investing in recovery and treatment, and they're actually bringing down overdose rates. 
We know it works. Recovery and treatment. That's where I'm going to be putting the money. By the way, I'll also sue the drug companies who flooded our streets with the opioids in the first place by lying to our medical system and our regulators to get people hooked on this stuff. I want to do what the Americans have done, which is to get just sue them for billions of dollars so that they pay the price of our recovery and treatment program and we can bring home our loved ones drug-free. It's common sense. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Great to be with you. Thank you. All right, let's talk about this issue that we've been following for you on the show, and that is the safe supply of drugs. Safe supply. So how does this work now? Okay, safe supply, typically hydromorphone. Hydromorphone is an opioid tablet, and it's distributed to people who are at high risk of an overdose from fentanyl-contaminated drugs. The, the illicit street drug supply is highly dangerous, especially with fentanyl laced into these drugs. They have over six people a day dying from overdoses. How do you, how do you reduce this? Well, safe supply. You give people an alternative drug that is lab-tested. It's, it's distributed in a, in a highly measured dose. And then you prevent people from dying. If they're going to use anyway, you give them a hydromorphone, safe supply. Now, I've got Guy Felicella standing by to discuss. He's a harm reduction and recovery advocate. And he was listening to Monday's show on this topic when we received this phone call from Sean in Campbell River. And he, Guy reached out to me. He wants to respond to this call. Let's listen to the call first, and then I'll speak to Guy. Let's listen. So I I live this environment pretty much every day as the manager of security operations for a private company. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that there's no way that a safe supply is going to work on the street. It might work for people who are using at home, but on the street, that's just a no-go. I've got people on the street that they have to understand that the one thing that people on the street who are hardcore users, they're not looking for a safe supply. They're looking for the highest high. You could put the safest drug in front of them and put another pouch next to it that they know is going to kill them, but it's going to give them a rip-roaring high, and they'll take that one 98% of the time. I've watched people on the street take some stuff that is just a nightmare, coughing up blood because of it, and they'll take it again in an hour. It's safe supplying on the street. It's just it's a no-go. Okay, that was Monday's show. That was Sean from Campbell River. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Guy Felicella. Guy is a harm reduction and recovery advocate. Guy is a recovering drug addict himself, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Guy, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Guy, I know you're a big supporter of Safe Supply as an alternative for, for people. Why You reached out to me after that call. Tell me why that call really kind of hit home for you or... or really struck a nerve for you well i mean his comments are uh, i mean correct in the sense where um in the beginning yeah i mean i wanted to get high but the the reality is is that once you and and i'm talking about opioids once you become dependent on on uh you know fentanyl heroin it's not about seeking the highest high that that doesn't happen anymore i wasn't getting high anymore it was about maintenance and not being sick and the reality is is that's you know what people are 
trying to accomplish when you become dependent on, you know, um, fentanyl or, or heroin is that you, you want to function through life because you're wired to it. And so that in itself is the data grind. Also, too, when, when people are using stuff and you hear stuff about coughing up blood, that, that, that's from health complications. Um, you know, does all drugs make people cough up blood? I mean, I think what happens is that substance users don't go get their health checked because of how they're treated in health facilities. So there's just a combination of things. I just thought that the comments that this guy made um, has obviously no knowledge of, of being a, a drug user or a former drug user himself. So um, what he sees and what's happening are two different things. Okay, let's talk about safe supply Guy, and you support the Safe Supply program. What can you tell me why? Well, because it, it's worked for a lot of people, and I, I'm not saying that diversion um, doesn't happen. Um, you know, I've I've gotten many people who are overdosing calling me, families calling me, like you know, their sons have gone to treatment or their daughters have gone to treatment, and it's like they're continuing to to use on the street, and they're worried and concerned, and so. Um, for a lot of people, it does work. And for the for the ones that it doesn't, doctors, doctor-patient relationships is always monitoring, um, you know, the, the, the program. In, in a sense, if it's not working, then they can provide other substances such as, you know, the fentanyl patch or another medication so that it doesn't get diverted um, into the street. And then what I also thought, too, listen. Diversion's been happening in the in the world in our society for decades. It just seems to be targeted on a specific um, safer supply program. When you know Tylenol threes, Valium, oxycodone, uh, Percocets, Viagra are all pills on that uh, corner in the downtown east side that people can access every day, and those drugs aren't on any safer supply program. And also, if you're going to buy substances in the downtown east side, it's like shooting fish in a barrel with a shotgun. You're going to get drugs. And if if the reporter would have rock, walked around the corner, he could have bought 100 hits of fentanyl um, in like 10 minutes. And so, you know, going into the downtown east side and then portraying it the way it was portrayed, I just thought it was uh, inaccurate because I'll tell you this, why didn't the reporter go to Richmond or White Rock where there are uh, people being prescribed safe for supply and try to find it there, he'd still be looking. Um, okay, so, well, so, so let's talk. When you talk about diversion, just so the, the listeners know what we're talking about here, this idea of diversion is let's say someone is prescribed a, a safe supply of drugs, hydromorphone. The, yeah. the diversion is the suspicion or the belief is, or the, the fear is that the, the user will just doesn't want to use those drugs just wants to get them to sell them, sell them to someone else, and then use the money to buy the harder, more dangerous drugs like fentanyl. And then you, you get even more people addicted, if they, especially if you got kids using hydromorphone, these so-called safe drugs. So you're saying that that, is, that does happen, but maybe it's being exaggerated, it's not as big a problem as, as maybe it's being portrayed? Is that what you think, or...? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it, like, I mean, in a lot of areas, there is no, there are people taking those medications, depending on where you are, what location you are, safer supply is working for a lot of people. Look, the downtown east side has this tremendous amount of challenges as well. And so uh, for some people, you know, they do divert drugs. That's just the reality. But, um, and that, what needs to happen with that is that there are people um, with that client uh, 
doctor-patient relationship where things get monitored and changed and drugs get changed. And I know lots of doctors that have stopped prescribing people Dilaudid because it wasn't working for them. Um, and now they're prescribing them fentanyl patches. It's the same thing as going in, uh, Mike, for a heart condition or diabetes. They start you off on a medication, and if it doesn't work, they adjust it. It's the same thing with safer supply. I think people are just jumping to, you know, this hysteria and fear-mongering that these drugs are being diverted all across the, the country when reality is, is uh, you know, I can't believe that we're actually focused on this when fentanyl is in all our communities killing six people each day. And so, you know, you have to remember what the cause is or what's killing people and what's not. And as okay. far as I know, from the coroner's service, there's not been any deaths um, to date um, from prescription opioids. Okay. Okay. I think that's a, a, a strong point. But let me let me play a clip here for you, guy from Pierre Polyev, who was on the show here earlier. Now, he has raised this in the House of Commons. He had like a... a Barnbuster debate on this with Carolyn Bennett the other day, the federal addictions minister on safe supply. And Polyev told me this morning that because these drugs are being, in some cases, diverted, as we've discussed, he says he would cancel the whole thing. So he would cancel safe supply, use the money to fund recovery and treatment programs instead. Here's what he told me a short time ago, then I'll get your thoughts. This is Pierre Polyev earlier today on the show. I will cancel taxpayer-funded free hard drugs for addicts and put all of the money into recovery and treatment to bring home our loved ones drug-free. Guy Felicello, what do you think of that? Well, I mean, canceling a program that works for a lot of people would then send people back to the, the drug market. Um, which would kill people. Um, putting it all into treatment, I don't, I don't know who's advising Mr. Paulier, but I agree there needs to be treatment or more options to treatment in our country. Um, however, uh, going to treatment doesn't guarantee that, you know, people are going to remain sober either. Like, you have to think about it. Like, I went through treatment over a dozen times, and the majority of people who do go through treatment uh, it takes it takes many attempts. And so then when you use again, you go back to the market that's available and you overdose and die. And so not had listen, the, the division between recovery and harm reduction is political. And this needs to change because politics don't save lives. Um, it's about political opportunism and power. And you need both and you need to protect people and you need a harm reduction safety net that falls under people who are leaving recovery and treatment options. Would you therefore say, Guy, if if Polyev became prime minister, if he won the next election and followed through on this and and canceled these safe supply programs, that more people would die as a result? Like if they if they don't have access to the safe supply, hydromorphone, they would seek out the more dangerous street drugs and more people would die. Most definitely. Okay. Guy, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. All right, let's keep talking about the safe supply issue. Now, this one really blew up in the House of Commons the other day. Pierre Pauly of the Conservative Leader, he was my first guest on the show today. Uh, he says he would cancel these safe supply programs that supply lab-tested uh, drugs to people so they don't die from fentanyl overdoses. He says that he would cancel that. Listen to this exchange here between Polyev and the federal mental health and addictions minister, Carolyn Bennett. People are dying 
because the policies of this Prime Minister are killing them. He is, his policies are flooding the streets with drugs that now go for a dollar a hit. We are pretty fed up with this fight against evidence-based programs that actually are saving lives. We cannot allow the Conservatives to take us back to the failed ideology of the past. Discuss now with my guest, Julian Summers, addictions researcher, Simon Fraser University. Julian, thanks for coming on again. Great to be with you, Mike. Okay, this issue really heating up now. What are your thoughts on it? Safe supply. I know you heard my conversation there with Guy Felicello who says, look, this is saving people's lives. What do you think? Most of the people who are dying, the majority, two-thirds, earned no legal income in the year of their death. The poisoning crisis is a mental illness crisis. When research has been done into the diagnosed mental disorders of the people who are dying, as was done in a provincial Alberta study, 87% had been diagnosed with mental illnesses separate from their addictions. Uh, There are people living rough. There are the people that we see on our streets increasingly. And uh, uh, and Guy, uh, it must be said, works for uh, the organization, the BC Centre for Substance Use, that created the term safe supply, and it's a marketing term. They agree with the results of our review. By the way, we use the term public supply of addictive drugs. It's more neutral. It doesn't uh, apply the, 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 the label of safety or, of course, effectiveness. The minister um, is, is blowing smoke when she says that the evidence is in and we're following the evidence and you're opposing us. There is no evidence to support this, and the proponents of this, the BCCSU themselves, agree with this point. They, they wrote a public letter last year lambasting our, our review on the topic, and mainly because they don't want key questions asked, like, how much is it going to cost? What are the eligibility criteria? How would you screen out people who are struggling with schizophrenia and other conditions for which giving them opioids or combinations of drugs would really be a terrible idea? They don't want any of that to be discussed. So there are clear conflicts of interest. And and what the, the main cost of all of this is time. People are hanging on to power, whether it's the liberals in government or the BCCSU, uh, locally, they're, they're um, uh, costing us uh, the ability to actually turn attention to evidence. I've been working in this area as a researcher doing harm reduction research for 35 years. As recently as yesterday, Guy Felicella on behalf of BCCSU is online characterizing the whole body of work as useless. Well, that's simply disingenuous and, and harmful, most of all, to the people we see living increasingly on our streets, in our neighborhoods, surviving right. out of necessity through crime. And we know how to help them. We have, Canadians spent $130 million to conduct randomized controlled trials to help people in those very circumstances. And, and the results are, are in and are consistent and show marked improvements in people's well-being, marked reductions in crime. And let me know. Yep, go ahead. Let me let me in the interest of time, Julian, because we just sadly have just one minute left. When you say when you said that you you do not like this term safe supply, you have another more neutral term. Is that because you believe these drugs, these hydromorphone are, are not they're not safe, that safe supply is actually not safe? We just have one minute. Yes. 
they're clearly not safe. Remember the OxyContin crisis, the proponents saying oh, prescribed drugs can't hurt people. Come on. We've, we see people succumbing to, to in fatal reactions and non-fatal crises to prescribed drugs all the time. All we're doing is flooding the drug supply while we're neglecting areas of people's lives that we know how to help. And in the meantime, we're turning a blind eye to it. It's, it's atrocious. Julian, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Great to be with you, Mike. talk about the housing crunch in our region i really feel especially for young people trying to get into this housing market especially if they're trying to get into a first home the prices have come down and cooled off a little bit seems to be surging again though and so expensive even for a condo and for a lot of people who are priced out of this market what can we do about it? There's a lot of talk about we got to increase supply. Let's get more stuff built that people can actually afford. Look at what the provincial government is doing. You got Premier David Eby talking about density. You'd be allowed to build four homes, four homes on one single family lot. Okay. Let's discuss this now with the mayor of one of the fastest growing municipalities in the region, Eric Woodward, the mayor of the township of Langley. Very pleased to welcome him back. Eric, thanks a lot for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. Let's, let's talk about the population there in Langley Township. I mean, you guys are fast growing region, right? Yeah, we're one of the fastest growing uh, by percentage. We're the fastest growing municipality in Metro Vancouver. Yeah. What kind of pressure is that putting on housing there in your community? Well, it's putting a lot of pressure on us from an infrastructure point of view. Um, the previous mayor over the past 10 years was uh, you know, quite, quite aggressive and opened up a lot of different areas to development in Willoughby. And while so that's led to our growth rates, that's also led to significant challenges uh, from road infrastructure and uh, sports facilities for, for all the young families and young kids in our community and a number of other challenges that, of course, we struggle to pay for to keep up with that growth. What do you think of the the province's idea for rapid densification here? Like, let's let's allow four homes to be built on a single family lot. Do you like that idea? Well, Would you in Langley Township? Well, in Langley Township, I think there's a challenge with that. I mean, of course, the that'll be really important to get the details on on what that's going to look like and, and you know what lot sizes they're, they're considering and talking about I mean, our initial reaction was that that maybe is more applicable elsewhere in some of these uh, predominantly single family areas uh, they maybe should look at some increased uh, middle middle missing middle housing and so on in, in our scenario in like walnut grove or, or brookswood or some of our single family neighborhoods that are long established um, we would sort of look to sort of have that exemption for that at least for now because we're building so much housing in the Willoughby area and soon with the uh, Fernridge areas potentially coming online, that uh, I would ask that we, you know, would not be looking to uh, face the same infrastructure challenges in some of these established neighborhoods that we're facing in some of our growing neighborhoods. To be doing all of that simultaneously would be very challenging for us. So we, I think, would look to, to not be included in something like that. Okay, well, that's very interesting. Have you been consulted at all on this idea like did anyone from the provincial government reach out to you in, in langley township and said hey this is what we want to do allow people to put four homes up on a single family lot what do you guys think of that 
Yeah, well, I mean, just a little more context, you know, we've got like an established area like Walnut Grove, which was developed in the 80s and 90s. You know, it's a cul-de-sac neighborhood, um, you know, lots of walking trails and relatively low density with schools and a high school. It's pretty much finished and built out. We wouldn't be looking to say all of a sudden we're going to be mandated that, you know, four dwelling units per single family lot there isn't appropriate. You know, is, is, the, mm. is the water infrastructure sufficient? Is the sewer infrastructure sufficient? You know, do we want school pressures in Walnut Grove that we're, that we're facing in Willoughby and in uh, in Surrey? I think the answer for us would be no, we don't. And so um, that's where the consultation piece would reveal that maybe if they really want to target this to areas that aren't approving housing, maybe to the to the degree that the provincial government would like to see, Township yeah. of Langley is certainly not in that category. I mean, we're approving and proceeding to build as much housing as we can in the Willoughby area to finish the, the neighborhood construction. We have a half-built area. We want to finish it to improve quality of life for our residents there. And we wouldn't be one of those municipalities that the province has to worry about not approving housing. Very interesting. I'm speaking to Langley Township Mayor Eric Woodward, this is it seems to be a trend here of mayors who are expressing some concerns about the direction here. If the provincial government is going to bring some sort of regulatory hammer down here on local government, force you guys to build more housing and densify. Let's listen to the your colleague here, the mayor of the mayor of Richmond, Malcolm Brody, raising some similar concerns here. Let's listen, then I'll get your thoughts. What may work in one location may well not work in another location. What about the other services that are involved? Police, fires, schools, the hospitals. We're going to have cars. Where are they going to park? Where are they going to park? I've heard this a lot. If you densify to this degree, four homes on one lot, do you create traffic problems? Do you create Carmageddon if people can't find a place to park? Mayor Woodward, your thoughts? Well, I certainly respect Mayor Brody's experience. I mean, having been the mayor as long as he has, I mean, I think there's some cautionary tales that need to be explored before, and as you phrased it, the hammer comes down. I mean, uh, in yeah. our case, I would I would raise the concern, of, of course, of parking in some of these residential areas that were designed to be low, lower density, you know, in a, in a previous era of development. Uh, the, I would focus more on the lack of transit that we're facing in the township of Langley, for example, I've got, you know, huge areas which have almost no transit service and no prospect of any. We have relatively low transit service into some of these areas like Walnut Grove or Brookswood and, and especially in Alder Grove or Salmon River, some of our neighborhoods, you know, if we're going to start densifying those um, without any sort of access to transit, well, then yes, your only option is to have a car and where are those cars going to go? This is a very, this is a very common concern that our residents yeah. have. Yeah, I've heard the other side of it I hear frequently is that we are in a housing crisis, so we can't let this sort of nimbyism rule the day. We've got to build more housing. We have to densify. Let's not get paralyzed by worrying about parking or uh, you know other things, other traffic. we got to build stuff, so let's get these houses built. Let's densify. And it won't be as bad as people think. Now, let me play a clip here for you from housing activist Ian Cromwell in an earlier show who says, look, a lot of people worry about this needlessly. It's actually going to be great. You pack in more people, it'll be good. People will like it. Here's what he has to say, and I'll get your thoughts. I'm sure there are going to be some people who will who will only see the downsides to a, a denser and healthier city. But I think there are a lot of people who are going to welcome having more people when they walk down the street. 
I mean, more people, it will be good. More people in the neighborhood. Yeah. Your thoughts? Well, I think from the township's point of view, that would depend which part of the township. I mean, that sounds, I mean, I don't know this person, but that sounds like a very Vancouver-centric way of looking at things. I mean, in some of our you know, areas, we're doing very significant compact development on 200 Street, for example, where we know the TransLink is going to be bringing bus rapid transit at some point. Um, in the Willowbrook area, where we, where you know, SkyTrain is coming, you know, theoretically around 2028, that that kind of comment makes sense in some of those areas. But some of our other areas, you know, if they were to just like Fort Langley, for example, you know, not not very walkable, it's presumably um, very large lot sizes. I mean, do we really want to see densification in those areas? Or are we looking? You know, in the township, when we're already building such a significant amount of housing for what we have on 200 Street next to transit, you know, I think we would be looking for an exemption on some of these top-down approaches because we are not one of the people not building housing. And we're also not putting it in the wrong place, so to speak. We're putting it in the right place, you know, where we're projecting to have rapid transit. Okay, you mentioned earlier that you would like to get some consultation, some details from the province, precisely how this is going to work. You've expressed some concerns about the lack of infrastructure, transit services, if we're going to start densifying like this. Let me let me play a clip here for you from the Premier on this point, because he has heard these these concerns, and here's what he has to say, and then I'll get your thoughts. Here's David Eby. Let's listen. The second bill sets out a framework for how the province is going to work with cities to respond to this massive spike in our population. Uh, this framework uh, sets out a mutually agreed target to hit in terms of the kind of housing that municipalities already know they need because of housing needs studies that we've supported them to do. Okay, so he has said, don't, we're going to work with municipalities. Don't, don't worry, we'll consult with them and we'll work this out together. Are you seeing any evidence of that? I mean, there is some consultation occurring with, through Metro Vancouver, which we're a part of uh, that determines some of that those housing projections and who's doing what. I mean, there's some consultation occurring at the staff level that maybe doesn't involve uh, the leadership too much. So I think, you know, there hasn't been enough consultation, in my opinion, to just sort of, for some, some municipalities can be so much different than others. Like uh, to say that you're going to have the same plan and framework for, say, the North Shore, um, you know, maybe where, we're, where they're, they're not growing, they're actually, their, their population went down, um, you know, versus the Township of Langley, I would prefer that, yeah, there's some discussion about different frameworks for different kinds of municipalities. And, and I think, um, you know, coming down into our layer in terms of land use planning, infrastructure issues, and how we're going to grow these housing areas, uh, and it's a little, little concerning. Um, I, of course, would wait for the details and you know, would, would be very concerned that, again, some of my established single-family neighborhoods uh, where, you know, township as a whole is growing significantly are going to be seen the same as a North Shore, which maybe isn't. Right. So just, just lastly, then, on that point, like, you've... you've made the case here to be exempted from this density plan to allow four homes on one lot because you're building so many ho- homes elsewhere. How many homes are you are you building in Langley Township right now? Yeah, it, dep- it depends on the year and, and the, the quarter market conditions. But on average, uh, we're adding about 1,500 dwelling units per year, maybe three to 4,000 people. Sometimes it'll get a little bit higher, two to two to 3,000 units per year in the spike. But um, and for us, that's quite significant. It may not sound like much, but uh, Surrey's doing 15,000 dwelling units a year. Sorry, people. 
Um, we're doing about three to you know four to five thousand, depending on the year, maybe around thirty five hundred. So, percentage wise of our population of only about one hundred and fifty thousand, uh, we're going to be two hundred and twenty five thousand by twenty forty. So again, it's uh, we're not one of the municipalities that the province needs to be concerned about uh, not doing our okay. part for the housing supply crisis, and uh, you know maybe best to leave us alone and, and focus on some other municipalities. Mayor Woodward, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you very much. All right. Let's talk about crowded schools in the city of Surrey, one of our fastest growing cities in the province. And yeah, a lot of schools bursting at the seams, a lot of schools turning to portables as a solution, even looking at some double-decker portables as well. Let's discuss now with my guest, Gary Timoshuk, Vice Chair of the Surrey Board of Education. Gary, thanks a lot for coming on today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Mike. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. Let's talk about the, the situation in Surrey schools right now. Or, uh, how crowded are we and how many, uh, how many portables do you have right now? Throughout our district, uh, we're using 361 portables this year. And uh, based on projections, that's certainly going to go up. It could be pushing close to 400 for next September. Wow. Okay. What is driving us? Like population growth in Surrey? Is that what's driving it? A lot of families like uh, moving to the city of Surrey. It's affordable, a great place for families uh, to be uh, living and working, playing, and educate, being educated. So that's why people are moving here. And uh, of course, as the kids come, we need more uh, school spaces. Now, what do you think about using portables? Is that kind of um, sort of a last resort? I remember when I was a kid, I did a, at least a year, I remember, in a portable and it wasn't, eh, it wasn't too bad. I found. I remember it was a little bit cold in the winter. It was a long, <laughs> that was a long time ago. Maybe they're better insulated now. Well, a portable is a short-term solution. It's not meant to be lasting by any means. Um, you know, it's functional. It provides some space for uh, teachers to teach and students to learn. However, for the long term, it's not a good idea. One of the things that it does is just, first of all, when you bring them onto the school property, it's taking land that might otherwise be used for playground space. And then, of course, the kids themselves, you've already touched on it. Sometimes the temperature can't always be regulated to the same degree. But more importantly, students in portables don't have the same access or uh, immediate access to things like restrooms, a library, common space, cafeteria, gymnasium, etc. Yeah, so would you therefore say that uh, a regular classroom is obviously preferred, right? Like as a, as a learning environment? Absolutely. And it's much better for classrooms uh, to have collaboration time within a school so you can be much closer to and, you know, go back and forth between a couple or three classrooms, for example. Yeah. The Surrey City Council taking a look at this now and have actually talked about a, they describe it as a, a crisis situation, a crisis in the, in the city schools. Would you agree with that description? Well, I think uh, where they're coming from, and it's so true, is that we have a large number of portables, and it's been going up. If you you know look at the numbers over the last several years, the number of portables we're using keeps increasing. And without any new schools coming our way or additions to existing schools, that number is just going to keep growing. Who knows, over the next few years, we're, you know, we're projecting it could go as high as 500 or more if we don't get more schools or additions to existing schools. Wow. Okay. Boy, that's a lot of portables. So what would you like to see done here? What uh, You're asking for the province to, what would you like to, them to do? 
Well, every year we're required to, as every school board is, to uh, submit our uh, capital plan to the uh, BC Ministry of Education and Child Care. And we did that just last Wednesday. So for us, projecting over the next five years to answer your question about what do we need, we need more schools, of course, but yeah. to the tune of three, $3.1 billion. And so several new schools, additions to 22 existing schools, it's a lot of work that we need to do in order to uh, eliminate those portables or at least reduce them. $3.1 billion? Holy smokes. Like, over what period of time would that be? That would be a five-year term. Over five, the next five years, that's what we need. Wow. $3.1 billion over just in Surrey? That's right. Wow. And what would that... What would that pay for? Like, if they did put that amount of money on the table, that would allow you to re- replace all these portables? Is that what would happen? Uh, well, that's what we would certainly be hoping to do. Uh, what yeah. it would give us is uh, 10 new schools as well as additions to existing schools. And some of those additions can be upwards of 500 uh, for 500 additional students onto an existing school. Wow. Okay. Let's have a listen to the education minister here because she was asked about this the other day. And let's hear, have a listen to what she had to say. Rakhna Singh, the BC's education minister. Let's listen. They are seeing the unprecedented growth, a lot of pressure on the, uh, on the school district. Uh, we are very cognizant of the enrollment, and that's why we are fully supporting the Surrey School District. We're fully supporting the Surrey School District. So does that mean she's, she's going to show up there with $3.1 billion for you? Like, what, what, is, what does that mean? Well, uh, <laughs> fingers crossed, we, we would like to think so, but I think the reality is that's not the case. We're hoping yeah. we're going to get some announcements over the coming weeks and months for sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, fully supporting, that's an interesting choice of language there because I, I, I can't imagine there, she's coming there with a check for $3 bucks any anytime soon. Like, what, could, what could be done in the interim? Like, what, what would be the minimum you think the province needs to do here right now? Well, I think, uh, you know, to answer your question about the minimum, I, right now, in order to, be, to help us with our portable situation, we need several elementary schools. So in the order of about seven elementary schools and two secondary schools, just to alleviate the pressure we've got right now. Yeah. What about the double-decker uh, portables? I've heard about that, well, lo- too. Yeah, we're looking into that. Uh, we're asking our staff to come back with a feasibility study and a cost analysis because it's something we're looking at in some school areas where the land is not available, yet we have to add more portables. Uh, For example, we have a school in South Surrey that currently has seven uh, portables, and over the summer we're going to be adding another seven to bring it to 14 at that one school. Speaking to Gary Timoshuk, Vice Chair, Surrey Board of Education, talking about crowded Surrey schools and the need for more portables here. So when you do a double-decker portable, like are these portables kind of modular? Can you stack them on top of each other? Are they designed to do that? Well, we know that you can do double-decker portables, but we haven't actually looked into it. We don't have the experience with it here in Surrey yet, and so that's why we've asked our staff to look into it. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of questions that come to light. I mean, can the bottom one hold the top one, the way to the top one? And then, of course, you got to think about accessibility and uh, ramps and so on to be, for kids to safely get up to the, uh, to the second floor. So we're yeah. looking into it. It's, it's something that we may have to go down the path in the future. Is this um, is this an example of some poor planning or lack of foresight? Because I have heard some parent advocates saying, like, look, we should have seen this coming. We even have some recently built schools in Surrey. These are some brand new schools, or at least recently new, 
that should have been built, they should have been built out bigger. They should have known that the demand was going to be there. Do you think that's a fair criticism? Oh, I do. And I think the problem has been in our province for a long time, many, many years, is that uh, for a lot of infrastructure, particularly as public education and schools, is the government of the day always waits until we're bursting at the seams. So they don't do that planning ahead, unfortunately. We know in the city of Surrey that uh, there's building going on everywhere. And so we can project, our staff at the school district can project where and when we're going to need the schools. But unfortunately, the money doesn't come to build them from Victoria to coincide with that uh, construction phase. Okay, we're following it closely. Thanks a lot for your time today. I appreciate it. All right, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.